Welcome to Destination DIY Detours. I'm Julie Sabatier. Sometimes it can be rough cranking out this podcast month after month. In my heart of hearts, I believe we've got a good thing going on here. But sometimes, lying awake in the dark, I start thinking about listener numbers and other quantitative measures of success. But then I remember that it's totally possible to be making great work without being a national sensation. Just look at Nick Jana. <laughs> is one of the best songwriters you've probably never heard of. He's been performing his catchy, clever, heartfelt songs with a rotating cast of musicians in Portland for more than a decade. And it's a total mystery to me why he isn't famous in the traditional sense of the word. But Nick doesn't seem to care. He keeps fighting the good fight, putting out a new album almost every year. And he's almost as prolific with his prose as he is with music. And this year, he can call himself a published author. Nick's book, Get It While You Can, from Perfect Day Publishing, is a kind of non-linear memoir that speaks to the rewards and pitfalls of a life dedicated to creative pursuits. Nick Jana, welcome to Destination DIY Detours. Thank you. So the book is about a lot of things, but the big picture, it's really about prioritizing creativity in your life and, and the freedom to make your creative work without having to have a day job. Yeah. What has that taken for you? Um... You know, I mean, you mentioned like not being a sensation or being famous or something. And, you know, that does seem to be a prerequisite for for saying that I have a career in the arts, especially music. You know, you think if, if you're going to be successful in music, that's synonymous with being famous. Right. I mean, because you need an audience and that's what fame is, you know. And so it's it's harder. It's a harder road to say I'm doing this no matter what. And um, maybe the audience is not there because it's more challenging work or because I'm not wanting to compromise in certain ways. I mean, that's the idealized version. Maybe it's not hitting because I didn't do certain business things or I didn't send out the right uh, envelopes or something, you know. I don't know what it is, but I'm not going to take that feedback to say, don't do this, you know. Um, I just, I always felt like that was a mistake. Like I made the decision to make this stuff and whatever the audience is. I care. I'm, I'm bummed out if I play for a small empty room or if people leave when I'm playing or if people heckle me, <laughs> you know, it's not fun, but um, it's, it, it's, it's too bad, too bad for them. But it's not, that's not something that happens to you all the time, right? It happens a lot. I mean, there's a lot of failure. I mean, I just, I think of most of my career in music and art as a bunch of failures, you know? So what keeps you going with it then? <laughs> I just want to do it. There's enough. Um, you know, I start, when you start writing songs, at least for me, I thought, you know, when you're at the very beginning and you have no idea what you can do and you just write a first song and you think it's amazing, right? You think, wow, if I could play this for one person and have it improve their life, that would be 
That's all I ever wanted, you know? That would be amazing. You don't think, if I could have 100,000 people and they each paid me $10 a year, that would be, if I monetize that, you know, you don't think of that because that's scale, right? You just want to reach people and be understood, you know? So that's happened, for me at least. There's been at least one person, you know, definitely more. And, and I, I meet those people every now and then that say, I broke up with my girlfriend and I was driving across the country with all my stuff and I listened to your album and it comforted me in the middle of Iowa, you know, like those things. And like, that's enough. I mean, they don't care. In a good way, they don't care how I pay my bills or anything. So what, is it, what does it matter? I never once thought, how much did Nutramilk Hotel make off of that album the first year? How comfortable was he? You know, like, it doesn't matter. That's capitalism. It doesn't factor into the audience, the audience's participation with the art, you know? So why should it, why should it change what I do? And you, you laughed when I was, when I was saying, you know, what I was saying in my intro, but, but I, I really mean it. Like, I think that when I think about like my creative project, which is this show, and when I start to sort of doubt myself and think like, should I keep going with this thing? Like not enough people are listening to it, whatever that means. Like I look at musicians that I admire like you and I think like, you know, this person has a small audience, but a dedicated audience and they have been doing this longer than I've been doing my thing. And it gives me a sense of, I don't know if I want to say hope, but like a sense of kind of solidarity, I guess. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think of it in a different industry. Like I always think of restaurants. Like if you started a restaurant that you really cared about and, and, and it was just whatever, the, the way that you sourced your ingredients or the way you had to prepare it meant that, uh, you know, I can only serve this many people to make these things because it's got to be good and I can only get this much stuff and seat this many people and it's, that's what I can do. And if there is a McDonald's across the street and you saw that and you thought, man, that one McDonald's is a hundred times more popular than me and there's millions of those and like, why are they so much more popular? You know, like, it would, it's ridiculous because you're doing different things. Even though you're both restaurants and you're making food, sort of, <laughs> in some <laughs> in cases. Quotes, in quotes. Um, you know, like you, people like to compare themselves to each other, you know? And they're like, why does that person get all that stuff? And it, it's so common with music and it's a, a, a virus. It's deadly, you know? Because so everyone's, you know, why does he get that opportunity? Why does that band get to play there? I'm as good, you know? And it kills you. It just kills you. Like, it's this negative cloud that, that, that is really deadly. And I just, you know, I do it too, but I don't, I, I, anytime I can identify that, I try to just walk away from it and cut those ties. Because it's different. You can't compare things, you know? Like, you do, you do a thing the way you do, and it reaches a certain amount of people. And because we're in this country where everything is capitalized and you're supposed to be an entrepreneur and make everything work, you think, well, why can't I make this work better, you know? And, and it drives you crazy. And you think, well, should I change the content? Should I give up? Should I sell out? Whatever, you know? And I think there's not a lot of encouragement to just say, do the restaurant, make the food that you make. You know how to make it. And if you can't scale it up, what, what can you do? Like you wanted to make this food for people and feed them and you're doing it. And just because you can't make it 10,000 times as big and still keep it the same way, don't, don't beat yourself up about that. And there's a chapter in the book that I love about um, going when you went to play at Folsom Prison yeah. and um, an inmate asked you like a really terrible question, but that you took with, I think, um, 
a great deal of generosity. He meant it really sincerely, yeah. And he said, when did you know that you were not going to be successful? Yeah. <laughs> and you sort of talk about in that chapter how you have a definition for success that works for you. What, what is your definition of success? I've learned to, to strip away needs as a, as a way to be happier, especially when traveling. You know, if you can let go of the need for 300 thread count sheets and, and 10 pillows or whatever it is, you know, not, I'm not mocking that. I understand it. But like for, for myself, who travels a lot with very little money, I have to say, I'll be okay tonight if I don't have a bed, if I don't have warmth, if I don't have a blanket, whatever it is, you know. And it makes me happier because then when I have those things, I'm so psyched, you know. Um, it's like a treat to have what you would normally think of as necessities, you know. And so stripping away those needs, um, you know, like I don't need a lot. And so what, success for me is making the project and getting to do it the way I want to do it and not compromising it and involving people I love, you know, getting to work with my friends. That's that's it, you know. So like beyond that, if I'm not on the Grammys, you know, it, which is what our people are normally going to identify as success, that wasn't part of the equation for me, you know, like it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I don't know if that would work. I don't know if, I don't know. And I mean, and you, you, a lot of the book deals with that and you're kind of coming back to this meditation retreat um, that is kind of the touchstone for the book where you're, where you're talking about um, sort of coming to terms with different things that have happened in your life, personal and, you know, professional. Yeah. And, and I, a lot of it is what you've just been talking about, sort of living um, in the present and thinking about your present needs and stripping that down. But what, when you think about the future, how do you separate that kind of comparing yourself to other people and their definition of success from your own goals? Like, what, what would you like to see yourself doing in, like, five or ten years? I think everybody kind of pictures this this gradual rise in their income and you know, friends and wealth and every happiness, you know, like that's kind of what America is based on, you know, maybe all of humanity is based on. So, I, you know, I, I think I like everyone want things to get better and easier and not uh, not have a broken windshield in my van and, you know, like just little things. Um, but mostly, I mean, for the work, it's just like making better work and getting better at what I do. And, you know, this was the first book I wrote. And in the first thing you do anything, there's this you know, you're halfway through and you're like, do I know how to do this? Like, do I know when I'll be done? Like, how do I know? And now that I'm done, I'm like, oh, a book. I can write a book, you know? <laughs> so I feel like that would change the next book I write. Knowing from the start that I can write a book, it'll just have more confidence and cohesion and everything, you know? So I'm just excited for, I just feel like, why can't I, why can't everything get, just keep getting better? I know it's not true. I know it's a delusion with musicians. And as a fan, it's rare that I know that I can think of any musician that constantly improves like definitely you fall off but um at least at this time in my life why couldn't I write a better book next time why couldn't I make the best song I've ever written next week you know a lot of the writing in the book did exist in sort of other forms um mm -hmm. you know it was tour diaries or essays or the unsent love letters yeah. online um before you pulled it together into the book what made you want to create a book out of out of the things that you'd written and write new things you just feel like um, I, I would love to find the thread that connects all these things and be able to present something to somebody that's like, this is what I think, you know, at this point in my life. But um, yeah, I, you know, there's something about a book that says like, 
take this seriously, you know, when it's printed on a page as opposed to a website, like it is still, there's something to it, you know, even for me, like, you know, you write a book and it's mostly a word document on your computer with a flashing cursor that could always delete words, you know, and then when it's printed, it is amazing when it's, it just has this gravitas to it. It's like, oh, right. It just seems like so much more, has so much more conviction, you know, it's nice. Would you read a, a portion of it for sure. us? Um, uh, I had something picked out, but is there something in particular that you want to read? What did you have picked out? What did I have picked out? Um, oh, the first unsent love letter. Oh, yeah, sure. It's a good one. It's a good one. Okay. So these are, this is from a series of letters that are um, unsent and, and, and the name is left out. So, dear blank, do you know about quantum entanglement? It's when two particles interact in such a special way that even if you separate them, their movements will continue to affect one another. You could be in Los Angeles with one of these particles, and I could be in New York. And if your particle spins a certain way, my particle will spin that way too. It's, this connection happens instantaneously, which is to say that it's faster than the speed of light. This is such a remarkable scientific fact that I can't understand why everyone isn't talking about it every day. This is more important than healthcare or algebra or the housing market. You could say that our desire to bridge distance is what is killing us. More and more, we want to get to places faster, and we are burning ourselves up to make that happen. It doesn't make any sense. If we are already connected to everything, we can stay right where we are. There are cords around your heart, connecting you to different emotions and places. You can't see them physically, but that doesn't matter. When you love something, you, your heart ties itself around it like it's tying a string around something it doesn't want to forget. There's a cord that runs from my heart to yours, for example, and it goes right through the center of the earth. It is a long, stretchy cord. Sometimes it has slack in it, and I can't feel your pull, and I wonder if you're still there, or if you slipped out of it somehow. Other times it tightens, and I can feel every movement, and I know what you're feeling without you even telling me. This cord doesn't obey borders or packs of marriage or care how many babies you've passed through your body. It is an interloper, and it breaks all the rules of human society, and maybe that's why nobody wants to talk about it. We don't ever have to talk about it, but still, I promise you that cord is there. You don't even have to wait for the achingly slow currents of light to bring you these messages. They are already there. Yours, presently, Nick. That letter just kills me. Um, does writing an autobiographical narrative, how does it compare to writing an autobiographical song? You have to make determinations and have more convictions about what you're really saying in a song it can be loose and you can always and it's the great thing about songs but you can always slip out of it and say well when I said I I wasn't speaking for me I was you know it was a metaphor whatever but when you're writing a book especially a memoir and nonfiction, and my name is on it you have to say I love Brussels sprouts you know like you can't be like you have to, and sometimes you're writing the sentence and you're saying, do I love Brussels sprouts? You know, like you have to come to your conclusion. Sometimes you just sort of are like 60% there on how you feel about Brussels sprouts. But like, you can't, in most cases, you can't just say like, I kind of think I love Brussels sprouts, but I don't know. You know, like what, what is that? You know, <laughs> that's going to be really re weak writing. And so you have to come to a bunch of convictions and it's actually really healing it kind of makes you decide things and, and be clearer you know and so you know it's just more specific and and it's more vulnerable because then somebody reads that and they're like wow you really love brussels sprouts huh and like 
you don't want to be like, yeah, I, you know, I kind of do. You know, yeah. It says right here, you, I love Brussels sprouts, Nick Jana, you know, like, and so it just forces you to stand by, stand by your beliefs more, which I really like, you know, it's scary at first. But the, you said that, you know, the book has this continuity to it and you keep coming back to the, um, the meditation, um, which is a 10 day silent retreat. Yeah. But the, the love letters are kind of an exception to that. Like they do stand on their own, which is one reason I wanted you to read one. Yeah. What function did you? did they serve like how did you decide to include them how did you decide where to place them in the book it just seemed like a good way to write honestly about autobiographical things but not have to name names and be too specific that it would be hard to that i would you know pull punches i wanted to just speak as as raw as i could about things that i felt to to real people that i wasn't unable to communicate with for whatever reason you know and it just freed me up to just be as as baldly uh, romantic or you know sentimental or whatever as possible yeah it, it sounds like a brave decision <laughs> really but like a song to some extent i can still back out of it and say like i never said your name in there i don't well, who, who knows who that's about you know yeah yeah that's true they, so they do kind of, of have it. the the same uh quality that songs do that you were describing earlier there's just a little bit of escape hatch yeah if i need it yeah. There's a chapter near the end of the book where you talk to women who you've written songs about um, and you do name them and you and you transcribe the conversations um, and you ask them what that was like. Uh, what were you trying to get at with that chapter? Um, I think naively I was trying to get some like pats on the back for, hey, thanks for writing songs about me, which did not happen at all. Um, I think uh, as a revisionist, I could say that I was trying to give people a voice that are you know, in the case of, of writing songs about someone, you're in a way objectifying them, you know, like you're talking about them and it's not a conversation, right? So I think maybe I was, now Now I can see it functioning as giving these people a voice that I talk about in my songs and in the rest of the book and to where I can directly quote them and say, have them stand up for themselves and say, I didn't like this song or this didn't do anything for me or I was annoyed by it, you know? I was kind of amazed at how little positive response <laughs> there was <laughs> to writing songs. And in some naive part of my mind, I thought like that that's one of the coolest things you could have about you is have a song written about you. But it's not how people necessarily see it. And that's fine. I, it's, it's understandable. And I learned a lot from it. And I have to ask you about one particular song you wrote about, um, I Know I'm Your Man, yep. which you say in the book that you've played at many people's weddings. Yeah. And you played it at my wedding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you write that you conceived the song as something that you would imagine playing at your own wedding yeah. with a person that you then later broke up with. Yeah. Is it painful for you to revisit those kinds of experiences over and over again, playing songs, whether you're at a wedding or not, like on stage, you know, and these very emotional Oh, kinds yeah. of experiences initially that song like in the first year uh, of having it and you know touring a lot and probably playing 80 shows in a year with my band i would li i would literally say I, I can't do this song tonight you know like i just can't for that reason you know it's just too bittersweet and that dissipates somewhat and it's helped by playing it for people who are having their first dance at their wedding and seeing it repurposed and it gets different associations with it mm. And now I can think of, of, of you dancing at your wedding when I play it. And that's a, that's a lot easier, you know? And you can see the good that it does and not just marinate in the, that bittersweet feeling, you know? Yeah. 
That's good because I was feeling a little bit guilty. No, it's great. It's a great gift. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking this detour with us. Yeah. Thank you. We'll have some links to Nick's music and his book up on our website, destinationdiy.org. Thank you to Levi Cecil, our sound engineer for the Detour series. We'll have a song to take us out here in a minute. But first, I want to share some exciting news with you. This is the last episode of this show that will appear under the name Destination DIY. Our next episode, out on February 24th, will be under our new name, Rendered. Uh, People really seem to like it. I like it. I hope you like it, too. There's an explanation about why we decided to change the name up on the website. But the short version is that people have let us know, um, most recently through a Maximum Fund listener survey, that they found the name confusing. And you may have had this experience yourself when you tell people about the show that you feel you need to add a caveat that says, it's not just about crafts or home improvement. It's not about how to do things. And the truth is that even though DIY is an umbrella under which many things can fit, it is limited in many people's minds to crafts and home improvement. And so I gave it a lot of thought and I decided that in order to reach a wider audience, it was time to change the name. Your podcast feed will automatically switch over. You don't need to do anything special. It will just show up um, the next time you see it. It will be under rendered. Thank you so much for listening and for sticking with us. We're excited to take the show to the next level. So tune in for Rendered. Now here's a song from Nick Jaina. It's called I Know I'm Your Man. I tell lies you see through you tie ties I undo I know birds don't fly in a figure eight you know I can't walk on a line so straight everybody knows the girl with wine stained hands and I know I'm your man Tail wings from whippoorwills. There are some things that force can kill. I know you are lost in a maze of corn beneath the permafrost. The ice man plays his horn. All our perfect trips could never have been planned. I know I'm your man Open up your heart Throw away the script You're perfect for the part All else is just wit We always laugh When no one else laughs We walk down the street MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.